You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'll be your host and guide for the next hour, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 25th day of June, 2012. This week, I would like to once again direct your attention to an interview that was conducted by another media outlet with yours truly, James Corbett, this time Legalize-Freedom.com, which conducted an interview with me about the Fukushima situation and the nuclear industry in general, an interesting hour-long conversation, and the the show notes for today's episode will contain the link to that conversation for you to check out at your leisure, and I hope you will do so. And secondly, today, the other point that I'd like to bring up, I would like to once again call on the support of listeners. It's been certainly a long time since we've done anything like this, but in the past, we have used and rallied your support into getting and securing certain guests for the website. Well, this time, I would like to ask people's support in a different manner. If you happen to be on Twitter, I am about to send out a tweet. In fact, by the time you're listening to this, it will probably already have been tweeted out basically asking people to retweet if they're interested in seeing Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins on the Corbett Report. It has come to that time when Billy is doing his uh, his media appearances for his new album and is doing some touring. The Smashing Pumpkins will be coming to Asia later on this summer, so if the possibility is there to schedule some sort of interview, I would certainly be interested in that. And anyone who has, for example, listened to his very interesting interview with Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols from a couple of years ago, where they talked quite openly about chemtrails and genetically modified foods and the various uh, ways that we're under biochemical attack, will know that this is not only a way to tap into the mainstream zeitgeist, as it were, and to uh, to access a lot of people who would not otherwise be listening to something like The Corbett Report, it also promises to be a very interesting conversation in and of itself. So if you are interested in this uh, project, please help me by retweeting that tweet. If you happen to be on Twitter, just go to twitter.com slash Corbett Report, and you can find that tweet and retweet it, and hopefully it might get someone's attention and might help to secure that interview. But on that note, let's leave that there and let's turn to today's podcast because we have a ton of information to get to today. Welcome, my friends, to episode 232 of The Corbett Report, AIG Exposed. If you are anything like me or many, many others standing on this side of the precipice that was the global economic collapse of September 2008, you probably received a, no pun intended, crash course in American International Group, a.k.a. AIG, in the wake of that crisis. Even by today's standards, AIG's losses are breathtaking. The insurance giant blew through nearly $189,000 a minute last year. That's despite the $150 billion taxpayers invested to prop it up. By the time this is said and done, the cost of AIG to the taxpayers is about $200 billion, or about $2,000 for each household. If it's such a money drain, why keep AIG afloat at all? Because AIG is at the hub of the global financial system, insuring pensions, money markets, banks, and insurance companies against losses in 130 different countries. If AIG fails, the whole wheel could deflate. 
president understands that he will take the steps necessary to ensure that uh, there is not a catastrophic failure uh, to our economic system. Today's $30 billion aid package is meant to buy time as the government, which now has an 80% stake in AIG, tries to sell off parts of the company at the highest possible price. Let's say you're a small property investor, you own three houses. Would you like to have to sell them in the next month or would you like to be able to hold on to at least a part of them to sell them over the next three years? Will Americans ever get their tax dollars back? The government-appointed CEO of AIG seems confident they will. The underlying insurance companies that represent AIG, they are rock solid. They're performing well. They generate earnings. They generate cash. We'll be able to take either that cash or the value of those assets, give it to the Federal Reserve in satisfaction of the debt. The CEO predicts it will take 15 to 18 months to stabilize the company. But analysts say if the economy continues to deteriorate, this may not be the last time taxpayers have to open their wallets to help AIG. Katie? Nancy Cordes reporting from Washington. Nancy, thank you. This is the story of American International Group, a.k.a. AIG, that most people out there probably know by now namely the downgrading of their credit rating in the wake of the Lehman Brothers collapse in September 2008 that caused a liquidity crisis that it in turn caused the markets to go into a tizzy and caused really, ultimately, the formation of a new paradigm, the bailout paradigm that we're still laboring under today, whereby the U.S. Federal Reserve steps in and does whatever it has to do in terms of printing funny money and raining it down on Wall Street as helicopter Ben Bernanke promised before becoming chairman of the Fed. Well, that's exactly what happened in this crisis, and this is exactly what has transpired with, as that report indicates, not the $182.5 billion bailout, the largest bailout in history, number that was thrown around at the time, but in fact a bailout that climbed upwards of $200 billion over the course of the proceeding several months. So something of just unthinkable scale, scope, and size, something that truly was unthinkable just a few months before. And what better sign that we're living in a new paradigm than the unthinkable suddenly becomes banal reality. And so on this side of the disaster, sitting here in 2012, we may have taken all of this, well, somewhat in stride. We may have forgotten just how large a uh, a seismic event in the economy that was and even what its ramifications continue to be. And it looks like the prevailing narrative about all of this is that, well, it's time to sweep the AIG story under the rug and really forget about the nationalization of the largest insurance company in the world and the 29th largest corporation in the world. Let's just sweep that back into the memory hole because it's no longer important because we have stories like this one from ToledoBlade.com from just earlier this month. Fed reports repayment by AIG of $53.1 billion loan. Quote, The Federal Reserve Board reported Thursday that American International Group has repaid all of its $53.1 billion in bailout loans from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, plus interest. The government stepped in with a $182.5 billion package to rescue New York-based AIG from collapse in 2008. The bailout was the largest in history. End quote. And that is the entirety of that article, a grand total of three sentences devoted to the largest bailout in history and the subsequent denouement of that bailout. And with that, I guess we're supposed to just basically shove that in the collective memory hole and forget all about AIG, where it came from, and what it's doing now. 
But it's not as easy as that, as you may have imagined. So there have been very few people, but there have been some brave people out there exposing AIG, what it's really been doing and what the ramifications of all of this are. So today we're going to be digging up those skeletons and putting them on display for all to see. Now, in order to understand any of the context of this story, why it's important or where it's heading from here, we will have to, as always, start rolling up our sleeves and exploring the real history of American International Group, what it is, how it was formed, and what its real history is. And in order to do that, well, why don't we turn to the horse's mouth itself and take a look in there and see what we can find. And by that I mean, why don't we listen to a speech given by none other than former AIG CEO and the person who really built AIG into the company that we know it as today, former CEO Hammerin' Hank Greenberg, whose actual name is the much less interesting and much more prosaic Maurice R. Greenberg. And he gave a speech outlining some of that history of AIG and how he came on board with the company. So let's listen to him talking about this. Good morning. Let me start really uh, uh, picking up with a professor. I enlisted in the Army when I was 17. I hadn't finished high school. Um, World War II was on. I felt I wanted to do something, and I was bored. Um, so I was able to uh, fix a birth certificate so it said I was 18. And um, they had no problem taking me because they weren't looking too closely. Um, I went to Europe, went to England first. I got there in 1943, a year before the invasion. Spent a year training. Uh, left England, went to the continent, obviously on D-Day. And went all the way through Europe. Um, linked up with the Russians in Linz, Austria. The war was then over. Uh, came back, I had to finish high school. Uh, which, was a, uh, which was a chore, coming back and uh, after being in a war and going back to high school was one of the toughest times of my life, actually. Uh, but I did, went on to college and um, law school. Um, finished law school and the Korean War broke out. I was a reserve officer. I had gotten commissioned toward the end of the war. Um, spent a year in Korea. Um, separated as a captain. Came close to staying in the military um, because I was fairly young and had moved up pretty well in rank and uh, was offered um, trying to incentivize me to stay in the military, but I didn't. Um, but I finished law school and came back. I was married by then. Married, just married a girl that I met in college. Um, and uh, I had to get a job. Uh, I didn't feel like practicing law. Um, I didn't think I had a law degree. I didn't think I wanted to do that. So I was visiting, I came back from Korea, and uh, the next day, went down to visit some of my friends who had been, went to law school with, and uh, it convinced me that I didn't want to practice law. And as I left their office, I went by an insurance company, a continental casualty company. And I thought I'd um, see if they had a job opening. So I went in, went up to the uh, personnel director, and he was kind of nasty. Now, I had just come back from Korea, and I, I came back 
I had orders to fly back, so I was really very untamed at that moment. Uh, you know, just only about four days before that, uh, I still almost had mud on my boots. And so uh, I went down to the main floor, looked around the directory, and there was a resident vice president by the name of Bob, Bob, Bob Reed. I just walked into his office and said, you have a, the word I used was not the one I use now. Uh, you don't have a very good personnel director. And um, I was a little more excited than that. And um, I wound up getting a job. And I started as a junior underwriter in the insurance business. So what is a junior underwriter? You, annual, uh, you analyze risks and decide whether the company wants to write those risks or not. Um, and I had to get a job because I, I said I was married and had responsibilities. And I kind of liked it. Uh, I was working in this, what they call the special risk division, uh, which was uh, uh, different kinds of risks almost every day. Some were sports risks, uh, some was um, accidental death thing for executives. It was a whole range of different risks you had to analyze. I found it interesting. I became the youngest vice president in the history of that company. I moved to Chicago where its head office was. And uh, about uh, a couple of years later, um, it's a long story so I won't take you through, I met Star, C.V. Star, who was the founder of the company that I chair today. Um, Star started his company in China in 1919, a um, long time. And obviously during World War II, he had to leave, um, came back to the United States. And um, he had a series of, of uh, small insurance companies. And um, I was intrigued uh, with his business because it operated outside the United States by and large. He had one company in the United States called the American Home. Uh, which really was a failure. It was not doing well. And he was embarrassed by that fact that uh, uh, a company that was not doing well, that he owned, his other business, he represented American companies in doing business overseas. It was called the AIU, American International Underwriters. It was one of a kind. And it operated mostly in Asia uh, one or two European countries, but by and large, it was it had a it had a uh, uh, its its background was really Asian, having started in China, uh, as I said, 1919. So anyway, I joined uh, Star and took over the American home uh, in New York, which I said was was not doing well. It was a it was a failure. Now, what was what was wrong with it? Um, it did business through agents, and depending upon the skill of a company, uh, would determine the quality of the agents that it had. And, and while it was an old company, it, was, it had a very poor agency organization. Um, and so the quality of its business uh, was very, very, very poor. So it was losing money uh, year in and year out. Um, 
And uh, the job I had was to turn it around. Uh, to cut that short, I got rid of all the agents and went into what they call the brokerage business. Instead of writing small businesses, we began writing large commercial risks. And we needed a lot of reinsurance. I went to London and got Lloyds to back uh, that, uh, that strategy. Um, and uh, up to then, most of the large risks were being written in London at Lloyds. Very few American companies uh, had the skills to underwrite large, complicated risks, whether it was large property risks or casualty or marine, aviation, very difficult risks. Um, and we assembled a group of, of quality underwriters um, and, we were, and we started doing that. We ultimately became the largest uh, brokerage underwriting company in the United States. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry about that. I must have dozed off there. Yes, well, so far, so perfectly bland, as you would expect from the completely monotonous and boring details of a bland financial institution like AIG and its perfectly snooze-inducing history, spoken in bland monotones by a particularly uninteresting storyteller. Blah, blah, blah. Greenberg came in, turned American Home around, started to look for other insurance companies, turned them around, put a holding company on top of it. AIG was born, became CEO, took over CV Star and Company in 67. CV Star died in 68. Greenberg became the kingpin of this big financial empire, blah, 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 etc., etc. You can go and listen to the whole story for yourself in its entirety by following the link to that audio on the show notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com. But why don't we cut to the chase? Because in amongst all of this bland history, there are some very interesting nuggets. We did a much better job in both, in both developing our business and managing the business in a more efficient way than others would do. And... Obviously, you have to have an organization. You've got to surround yourself with people uh, who share the same values, the same, the same aspirations that you do. Um, you have to have a team uh, that works hand in glove, and we did. The senior management of AIG was like a band of brothers. Um, we saw things alike. We worked well together. Um, I mean, there wasn't ever a palace revolution anything like that. It was, a, uh, it was a great organization. We added more diversification because that became, you know, clearly diversification was essential. But in order to do business in many countries, you had to open the market. Markets didn't, you know, welcome you in many countries. Take Japan, for example. It was a very closed market. Uh, Japanese were very reluctant to open their market to foreign insurers. Uh, so we had, to, we had to force the market open, uh, and we did. Uh, we used the U.S. government, was very, was very much on our side, and if the Japanese didn't open their market to us, uh, we, would, we worked hard to keep some of their own companies, whether it was insurance or otherwise, or other things, from doing business in the United States. We didn't hesitate to use the U.S. government to support uh, our desire to open markets around the world. 
didn't hesitate to use the U.S. government to open markets around the world for AIG? Well, that must have been quite the band of brothers that Greenberg was able to amass around himself in the upper ranks of AIG. One wonders what kind of connections they would have had to the U.S. government to enable them to wield so much power in the interests of their own private profit. Moreover, I went to, I went to the Soviet Union in 1964, during the height of the Cold War, and began a reinsurance relationship uh, with them. Um, and that, that lasted throughout the years. Even during the, the height of the Cold War, we had a relationship going on. It wasn't easy. Uh, they thought I was in the CIA most of the time. Uh, it, was a, uh, it was difficult. It was a difficult thing. But we persisted. And uh, when, uh, when the uh, Iron Curtain came down, uh, we had a head start against anybody else. Hmm, well, being a CIA agent certainly would actually make sense in a lot of different ways, especially the connections to government that enabled Maurice Greenberg and his band of brothers to wield the government like a stick for the use of their own private profit at AIG. But, but the way Greenberg tells it, it just sounds like sour grapes from jealous competitors and suspicious foreign governments. So is there anything to this? Can we dig up anything about AIG, about Greenberg, about the past of this insurance company that would make such ridiculous, outlandish accusations actually seem not so outlandish? Well, the answer is a resounding yes, but you're going to have to bear with me and buckle down because we've got some reading to do. In fact, quite a bit of it. There are some absolutely incredible articles that I want to draw your attention to that will help to connect some of the many, many, many dots in this greater AIG picture. But as I say, there's a lot of reading to be done here, so we'll put in on the record what we can. The rest of it you'll be able to garner from the show notes for today's episode. Once again, the link to the articles so that you can get them and save them to your hard drive so they don't mysteriously vanish into the internet memory hole will be there for your reading pleasure. And until then, let's start going down this rabbit trail and see how far down the hole we can get with stories like this one from that bastion of conspiracy mongers and paranoid uh, theorists, the LA Times, which back in September 22nd, 2000, published a very interesting article about a piece of history that had up until then been classified and basically the public had not been worthy of knowing it, according to the US government. It goes under the headline, The Secret Insurance Agent Men. Quote, they knew which factories to burn, which bridges to blow up, which cargo ships could be sunk in good conscience. They had pothole counts for roads used for invasion and head counts for city blocks marked for incineration. They weren't just secret agents, they were secret insurance agents. These undercover underwriters gave their World War II spymasters access to a global industry that both bankrolled and ultimately helped bring down Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. Newly declassified U.S. intelligence files tells the remarkable story of the ultra-secret Insurance Intelligence Unit, a component of the Office of Strategic Services, a forerunner of the CIA, and its elite counterintelligence branch, X2. Though rarely numbering more than half a dozen agents, the unit gathered intelligence on the enemy's insurance industry, Nazi insurance titans, and suspected collaborators in the insurance business. But, more significantly, the unit mined standard insurance records for blueprints of bomb plants, 
timetables of tide changes, and thousands of other details about targets, from a brewery in Bangkok to a candy company in Bergdorf. They used insurance information as a weapon of war, said Greg Bradshaw, a historian and National Archives expert on the declassified records. The OSS Insurance Unit was launched in early 1943, long after it had become alarmingly clear that the Nazis were using their insurance industry not only to help finance the war, but also to gather strategic data. American insurance companies had been competing furiously for overseas business even after the United States entered the war, and the OSS files suggest that details about U.S. factories and cities were falling into enemy hands because of the interlocking international relationships among insurance companies. Germany had 45% of the worldwide wholesale insurance industry before the war began and managed to actually expand its business as it conquered continental Europe. As wholesalers, or reinsurers, these companies covered other insurers against a catastrophic loss that could wipe out a single company. In the process, the wholesaler learned everything about the lives and property they were reinsuring. The motives of the OSS unit's founders were both pragmatic and patriotic. This story is incredible because the unit begins as part of the desire of American insurance interests to contribute to the war effort and exploit it for future economic gain, said historian Timothy Naftali, a consultant to the Nazi war criminals interagency working group that was created by Congress last year. The men behind the insurance unit were OSS head William Wild Bill Donovan and California-born insurance magnate Cornelius V. Starr. Starr had started out selling insurance to Chinese in Shanghai in 1919 and, over the next 50 years, would build what is now American International Group, one of the biggest insurance companies in the world. He was forced to move his operation to New York in 1939, when Japan invaded China. End quote. Well, if you're anything like me, not only will that story have cleared up any questions there may be about any linkages between the proto-AIG and the proto-CIA back in the day, and not only will that have cleared up why it is that intelligence agencies in general would be interested in making use of insurance companies, it should also have been a very interesting piece of history, and uh, if that is the case, then I would suggest you go and read the whole fascinating story for yourself. Once again, the entire article linked up in the show notes at CorbettReport.com. But wait, it doesn't stop there. In fact, things get deeper and weirder because although that is an interesting piece of history and it does definitively tie uh, the, I guess, proto-AIG head CV star to the proto-CIA and the OSS led by Wild Bill Donovan, it doesn't necessarily implicate Maurice Greenberg, who uh, was the person we were listening to and who really pulled together AIG as we know it today in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. So the question, I guess, is still a fair one. Well, what does this have to do with Maurice Greenberg? Can we definitively prove anything about him? Well, there's a number of things that we can say about Maurice Greenberg and the the actual AIG and its involvement in some very strange dealings. So for more on that, I'm going to direct your attention to an unusually thorough and well-researched article from the Ozark Gazette. And I believe this was actually originally published in 1995. It has been preserved thanks to the internet. And you can go and uh, follow the link from the show notes to find this very, very fascinating article that goes into some great depth about a very interesting case Involving the Arkansas Development and Finance Authority. So let's start reading this. It starts under the headline Gray Money, and it reads, quote, 
Activists seeking documentation that would support claims that the state of Arkansas was involved with money laundering on a massive scale may have found the missing link in their three-year search. Documents obtained by the Arkansas Committee show that the Arkansas Development and Finance Authority, a Bill Clinton signature project, was involved in a highly questionable and possibly illegal $60 million deal in which ADFA borrowed $5 million from a Japanese bank in order to buy stock in a Barbados insurance company. The stock was not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The state of Arkansas was the lead investor in a deal which poured $60 million through a Barbados company, Coral Reinsurance, which is currently under investigation by insurance regulators in New York, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, as well as by Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau, lead prosecutor in the BCCI scandal. Additionally, the Ozark Gazette has recently been told that as a result of the release of the Coral documents, the independent counsel, Kenneth Starr, is also investigating the deal. Persons involved in the deal, which began in 1987 and ended in 1991, include Bob Nash, then president of ADFA and now personal director of the White House, Robert Rubin, then president of Goldman Sachs Investment Bank and now secretary of the Treasury, and Maurice Greenberg, president of American International Group and a candidate in 1995 to be director of Central Intelligence. The American International Group is a $100 billion multinational insurance company which founded Coral Reinsurance Company in 1987. The fact that AIG founded Coral was hidden from insurance regulators for at least three years and was only recently proven by the reluctant release by ADFA of the original stock placement memorandum. Maurice Greenberg, as president of AIG, is a very well-connected businessman and a player in international politics. He serves as the chairman of the U.S.-China Business Council and lobbied hard and successfully for the Clinton administration to sever the link between China's human rights record and renewal of China's most favored nation trade status. Members of the board of directors of AIG include Martin Feldstein, Harvard University economics professor and former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and Carla Hills, former U.S. trade representative. AIG's International Advisory Board is headed by Henry A. Kissinger. The original deal was pitched to ADFA by Goldman Sachs, a New York-based securities firm which played an important role in the transaction. Goldman Sachs had pledged to sell the stock for Coral, and in addition, pledged to buy the stock if for any reason the other investors could not hold it and were forced to sell. Goldman's president at the time was Robert Rubin, later appointed by the Clinton administration to succeed Lloyd Benston, Benson as the Secretary of the Treasury. End quote. Well, I uh, don't know what to say other than to say that this story goes on and on and on and on and gets more and more bizarre as you get into it and involves all sorts of figures who should, whose names should be ringing a bell in one way or another. But suffice it to say, even in that first section of the article, just those first few paragraphs, I think we could have it fruitfully uh, take a look at any one of those linkages and probably make an entire episode out of each one. And just as an example, we could take a look at the independent counsel who is investigating the deal, Coral Reinsurance, and uh, the various people involved in this deal. Well, who was that spe- independent counsel? Oh, Kenneth Starr. S-T-A-R-R. Oh, yes, the great nephew of Cornelius V. Starr, the founder of what became AIG. And AIG, being the owner of Coral Re, 
the if the entire locus of which this independent counsel was allegedly investigating. And Kenneth Starr, of course, being the prosecutor who went on to uncover the big scandal of the Clinton years, Monica Lewinsky. So all of the the Whitewater stuff, all of the ADFA stuff, all of the MENA Arkansas drug running that we've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast gets completely swept under the rug and Monica Lewinsky becomes the reason for the impeachment of Bill Clinton and basically forcing him to uh, to start the bombing in Yugoslavia. And uh, that, again, is a completely other topic for another episode, but that's a pretty interesting linkage right there and goes to show what a farce the supposedly independent investigation into this coral reed deal is. And, of course, we can also note the appearance of Goldman Sachs and Henry Kissinger and others in this, these first few paragraphs. But why don't we dwell for a moment on the Arkansas Development and Finance Authority, which came to uh, to into existence under Governor Bill Clinton, then Governor Bill Clinton of Arkansas, back in the 1980s. Well, what is the ADFA and what was it involved in? I first met Bill Clinton in the mid to late 70s. He was an up-and-coming politician. Uh, there were a group of us, Jim Guy Tucker, uh, Bill Clinton, Sheffield Nelson, and myself. And we kind of ran around and palled around with each other. It was from that point that I did a lot of projects for Bill from a marketing perspective. In 1988, I went to Bill. And I said, I need uh, a job to kind of relax, mellow out. Bill Clinton and Betsy Wright, they suggested that I go to work for a place called the Arkansas Development Finance Authority. And they said my talents could really be used there. It was uh, the best kept secret in Arkansas. After about two weeks, I went to Wooten Epps, and I said, Wooten, I think I've got enough background on this that we can start marketing it. Now, what is the criteria for loans? He said, whoever Bill wants to get a loan. To go back, though, to that moment in time, I'd been there about a month, and I realized that I was in the epicenter of what I'd always heard about all my life. What most people have heard about is the machine. I was literally working, sitting in the middle of Bill Clinton's political machine. It was where he made payoffs, uh, where he repaid favors to people for campaign support. Um, I was in an interesting seat and I knew it. We had a board meeting. Um, in that particular board meeting, I was sitting at the end of the table. James Brannion, who was chairman of the board at that time, was sitting at the head of the table. James Brannion stood up in a public restaurant and he hollered at uh, the Beverly Enterprises guy, Bobby Stevens, and said, did you get the $50,000 campaign contribution from the client that, you, that you're introducing the loan for? He said, not yet. He said, well, then hold up the loan until we get it. I stood up, went up to James, and I said, James, don't yell stuff like that. You don't need to be yelling it in a restaurant. That sounds real bad. He was just burly and arrogant. He said, who cares? Bill Clinton sold the concept of ADFA to the people of Arkansas as a vehicle for creating jobs and assisting churches and schools. In reality, millions of taxpayer-guaranteed dollars were being channeled to Clinton's election campaigns, to his inner circle of friends, and to his wife Hillary's law firm. 
This may explain why ADFA had been drafted in such a manner as to keep its decision-making procedures secret. If you needed a million dollars, you had to get your application handled by the Rose Law Firm, pay them $50,000. There were five other companies in the state of Arkansas that were actually more qualified in bond structuring and applications, but Rose Law Firm got them all. I started checking around and I kept asking, well, you know, one thing's bothering me to the comptroller, Bill Wilson, you know, how do people make payments on these loans? He looked at me and said, they don't. He thought I knew. Well, that blew my mind. And this is about two months in and it was getting tough then. So I started gathering the documents. After everybody left, I would stick around as if I were working on the annual report that would give me access to all the documents. And I made copies of them all. For about two months, I watched accounts accumulate money. And then the month they zero balanced. They're laundering drug money. There were a hundred million a month in cocaine coming in and out of Mena, Arkansas. They had a problem. They were doing so much money in cocaine, a hundred million. You, you create a problem in a little state like Arkansas. How do you clean $100 million a month? ADFA, until 1989, never banked in Arkansas. What they would do is they would ship the money down to Florida, a bank in Florida, which later would be connected to BCCI. They would ship money to a bank in Atlanta, Georgia, which, by the way, was later connected to BCCI. They'd ship to Citicorp in New York, which would send the money overseas. And there was an interesting one, a bank in Chicago. That bank, by the way, is partially owned by Dan Rostenkowski. Dan Lassiter would get the bonds. He would become the broker for the bonds. He would transfer money back to ADFA. He never sold a bond. The money then would leave ADFA go into one of the various banks for the specific bond loan and they would zero it out. When they zeroed it out, they were giving it back to Lester, Lester handling fees. During the Lester investigation, we had numerous witnesses for the federal grand jury, uh, had extensive uh, testimony of uh, people that was connected with Lester and drug use and everything else. Uh, his cocaine uh, use become used as a tool for sexual favors and also for uh, uh, business uh, uh, deals that influence people. Uh, and that's when uh, Mr. Lash became quite flamboyant with his cocaine use and then ultimately uh, led to his uh, arrest and conviction. The sad part of all of this is that as amazing and just incredible as this story is, the rabbit hole continues to go deeper and deeper, so I will allow you to explore that on your own with the ADFA and how that that dovetails into the MENA connection, which we began to detail way back in episode 19 of this podcast nearly five years ago, so I will ask you to hearken back to that episode if you want more information on the MENA connection, drug running, and how that leads right into the lap of Bush and Clinton. But in, in case we want to continue pressing ahead with the AIG side of everything here, at the very least, AIG's involvement in this deal with the uh, Coral Reinsurance uh, getting $60 million of investment, $5 million of it from the ADFA, which all signs point to drug money laundering, 
a very, very interesting case. And one of the particularly interesting parts about coral reinsurance is, well, where the name came from, or at least allegedly came from. And this all goes back to Coral Talavera Baca, who was the, or at least alleged to be, or claimed herself to be, the wife of infamous Medellin cartel co-founder Carlos Letter. So you have the wife of an infamous drug gang warlord, uh, who is the the name is the person who the name the entire company Coral Reinsurance is named after, and she also happens to be presenting herself as legal counsel for AIG for a very important part of that company, uh, as early as 1994 and continues to do so for several years until a pesky reporter starts to ask questions about it, considering the fact that she is not even a licensed lawyer. Why is AIG employing this wife of, admitted wife of a drug gang warlord who got off with uh, $3 billion of his money intact after getting arrested? Why is she working at AIG as a legal counsel despite not being a lawyer several years after the arrest of Carlos' letter? Just a bizarre story in and of itself. And again, that rabbit hole goes down and down and down into AIG and drug connections. So I will let you pick it up for yourselves and read part of that uh, multi-part investigation from from thewilderness.com and Michael Rupert who was investigating that in 2001. It was due to be a multi-part series, but it got cut off at part two by 9-11. And yes, again, you just can't make this stuff up. There is the AIG 9-11 connections, and those have been detailed, well, probably most familiarly to my audience by Richard Andrew Grove, now of TragedyAndHope.com and the Peace Revolution podcast, back in his infamous and, I think, must-listen audio, Project Constellation, which I've talked about several times on this podcast. But for those of you who have not yet heard that, or for those of you who would like a refresher and how all of this ties in with AIG, I will direct you to Black 9-11 by Mark Gaffney. This is a book that has recently come out from Trine Day Press, and I did have Mark on the radio program to talk about this book and talk about 9-11 insider trading and other such very juicy topics. And on a programming note, for all of those people who have written in to tell me that this episode is not available for download, thank you very much. In fact, yes, I am aware of this fact. Unfortunately, because of the schedule changes to the radio show this week, for whatever reason, this episode didn't end up getting recorded or at least not recorded in its entirety. We have the first 20 minutes of it or so, and I am in the process of finding out if there is a recording of the full episode talking to Mark Gaffney about his book, Black 9-11. There may or may not be in the next 24 hours. I will uh, be confirming that. And if there is not, I will put up the first 20 minutes of that conversation that it still exists anyway. And we'll have to have Mark Gaffney back on to continue talking about this because obviously a fascinating subject and it's a shame that that seems to have not been recorded. But picking up from Black 9-11, in Chapter 3, called A Walk on the Dark Side, Mark Gaffney starts getting into the AIG 9-11 connections, because yes, they're there as well. So I'll read a section from this book, quote, The crash of American Airlines Flight 11 into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. should have raised red flags, flags because the point of impact at the 95th and 96th floors was another remarkable happenstance. Both floors were occupied by Martian McLennan, one of the world's largest insurance brokerages, 
with ties to the private intelligence firm Kroll Associates, which held the security contract at the World Trade Center. Indeed, the network of corporate ties here is so entangled that tracing all the links would fill this entire volume, but the most salient connections can be enumerated. The CEO of Marshall McLennan on 9-11 was Jeffrey Greenberg, son of Maurice Hank Greenberg, owner of AIG, the world's largest insurance conglomerate, or second largest depending on the source. Greenberg's other son, Evan, was CEO of Ace Limited, another large insurance company. Maurice Greenberg had been a director of the New York Federal Reserve Bank for many years, and in 1994-95 served as its chairman. Greenberg was also vice chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, which, as already noted, sponsored his 1996 report, Making Intelligence Smarter, the Future of U.S. Intelligence. As a result of that report, Senator Arlen Specter floated Greenberg's name as a candidate for the directorship of the CIA. Although George Tenet eventually got the job, the mere fact that Greenberg was in the running shows the extent of his influence. In 1993, Greenberg's huge insurance conglomerate AIG reportedly bankrolled the Wall Street spy firm Kroll Associates, saving it from bankruptcy. Thereafter, Kroll became an AIG subsidiary. After the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Kroll acquired the contract from the Port Authority of New York to upgrade security at the World Trade Center, in the process beating out two other firms. Kroll continued with the WTC security contract through the period leading up to the September 11th attacks. One of Kroll's directors, Jerome Hauer, also managed New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management, which was located on the 23rd floor of WTC-7, which was also destroyed on September 11th. Kroll's contract gave it unfettered access to all of the buildings destroyed in New York on 9-11. Nor was this all. In 1998, AIG invested $1.35 billion in the Blackstone Group, a private New York merchant bank. According to the New York Times, the two companies had worked together for many years. Indeed, Maurice Greenberg had served on Blackstone's advisory board since 1989. The connection is of special interest because in October 2000, Blackstone Real Estate Advisors, the real estate management arm of Blackstone Group, purchased the mortgage secured by WTC7. This startling string of coincidences should have been reason enough for the 9-11 Commission to investigate both the Blackstone Group and Kroll's shady background, as well as their relations with AIG, Ace Limited, and Martian McLennan. The Commission was armed with subpoena authority and could have probed deeply enough to learn the truth. Unfortunately, the official investigators were not interested in connecting the dots. The 9-11 Commission report, released in 2004, was, at best, shamefully inadequate, as will become apparent in the course of this narrative. Important evidence continued to appear nonetheless. In 2006, a whistleblower named Richard A. Grove went public with stunning testimony about his involvement with the Greenberg Empire, an up-close-and-personal experience, Grove says, that nearly cost him his life. During the period leading up to 9-11, Grove worked as salesman for Silverstream Software, a firm marketing designer solutions to a number of Wall Street institutions, including Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, Bankers Trust, Alex Brown, and Morgan Stanley. According to Grove, Silverstream built internet transactional and trading platforms designed to web-enable the critical business functions of Fortune 500 companies, basically integrating and making available on the web the disparate legacy applications and mainframes, while simultaneously stream streamlining workflow 
and traditional paper processes. The end result was a lower cost of operation and more efficient transactions because inefficiencies such as people were being taken out of the loop. Grove was so successful as a salesman that he earned over a million dollars before the age of 30. He only realized later that the software he sold might have, might have enabled fraudulent trading in the hours before and possibly during the 9-11 attacks. The most advanced software of all went to Martian McLennan, which, he says, placed an order in 2000 for a technological solution beyond what we had done for any of the above-named companies, insofar as it would be used to electronically connect Marsh to its major business partners via internet par portals for the purpose of creating paperless transactions and expediting revenue and renewal cycles. Grove inked the software deal with Martian McLennan in October 2000, and Silverstream stationed a team of 30 to 40 technicians in the client's offices in WTC1, led by several software developers, who proceeded to design and build the software package from the ground up. During this period, Grove served as liaison between Silverstream and Marsh to ensure that the software would perform as specified. The team worked around the clock, seven days a week, to meet Marsh's July 2001 deadline. The end result was a specific type of connectivity that was used to link AIG and Martian McLennan, the first two commercial companies on the planet to employ this type of transaction. Grove says he had first noticed fiscal irregularities in October 2000 when he and a colleague helped identify about $10 million in suspicious purchase orders. Marsh's chief information officer, Gary Lasko, later confirmed that certain vendors were deceiving Marsh, selling large quantities of hardware that were not necessary for the project. But Grove did not worry too much about this at the time, nor did he run into personal trouble until the spring of 2001, when he learned, while negotiating a license renewal contract with Lasko, that his own employer, Silverstream, had been overbilling Marsh to the tune of $7 million or more. Grove brought the matter to the attention of Silverstream executives, but was told to keep quiet and mind his own business. A Marsh executive advised him to do the same. By this point, a number of Marsh employees had earned Grove's trust, and when he shared his concerns with him, they agreed that something was going on. Grove names these honest employees in his testimonial, who, in addition to Gary Lasko, included Catherine Lee, Ken Rice, Richard Bruhart, and Jeff Oltzheffer. According to Grove, all of these individuals perished on 9-11 and a quick check confirmed that their names do indeed appear on the fatality list of World Trade Center victims. The proverbial manure hit the fan on June 5th, 2001, the day after Grove sent an email to his sales team informing them that Silverstream was billing Marsh millions above and beyond the numbers we were being paid commissions on. There seemed only two possibilities. Either the members of his team were being cheated out of their rightful commissions, or Silverstream was defrauding Marsh and McLennan. Later that day, Grove received word from Gary Lasko that Marsh had decided to retain Silverstream for the next phase of the project. He immediately informed his boss of the good news. Grove was personally delighted because his rightful commission would have been a payday worth well over a million dollars. He never collected it, however, because the next morning Grove was summoned to his boss's office and abruptly terminated. This is not the end of the story. Several weeks later, Grove suffered a medical emergency that required hospitalization, emergency surgery, and weeks of recovery. In August 2001, while still bedridden, he was contacted by Silverstream's chief financial officer and offered $9,999 in cash, plus an extension of his medical benefits, if he would agree never to talk about the work he did for the company 
Grove needed the continuing medical coverage and agreed to Silverstream's terms. During his convalescence, however, he became suspicious about the secrecy agreement and decided that, at the very least, he should maintain contact with the honest employees at Marsh, several of whom had become close friends. Shortly thereafter, one of them arranged for Grove to attend a meeting they had arranged at the offices of Marsh and McLennan, where they planned to openly question the suspiciously unconcerned executive who seemed to be at the center of the controversial secrecy. That executive had agreed to participate via a telephone conference link from his apartment in uptown Manhattan. This was the same individual who, months before, had warned Grove to look the other way. Grove claimed to be in possession of documents proving illicit activity, and he planned to produce them at the meeting. On the day of the showdown, however, he ran late, delayed by heavy Manhattan traffic. Grove says he was on Vesey Street, between Building 6 and 7, of the WTC set complex, when the South Tower exploded, apparently from the impact of UAL-175. By then, all or most of his friends in the North Tower were already dead or trapped on the upper floors. All told, some 300 or more Marsh employees perished that morning, the victims of terrorists. End quote. Well, that is a particularly good summary of the Richard Grove story and Martian McLennan and how that was related to Jeff Greenberg and Maurice Greenberg and ties in with the AIG scandal and ultimately ends up at 9-11 as an axis point where we see this illegal or at least alleged illegal trading taking place involving Marsh and other entities, and that trail is followed in much more depth throughout Black 9-11, so once again I would suggest you go and get a copy to start following that very fascinating trail, and one that I still think is vastly underexplored in the realm of the 9-11 truth movement. But where does this all leave us? Well, this leaves us at a very, very interesting stage where AIG and Maurice Greenberg and the Greenberg family and all of these characters are being implicated in all of these various plots, but all of this seems to be dismissed because just a few years later, Maurice Greenberg actually gets forced out of his position as CEO of AIG, the company that he helped build from basically the ground up, by, well, a pretty much an upstart, the uh, New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, over some fraud allegations. Well, that seems to be quite the, uh, the precipitous fall from grace for someone who was, for example, once held up as a potential director of central intelligence. How could it be that he was taken down by just this upstart rogue attorney general in this uh, little fraud investigation? There must be more going on. Well, for some indication of what was happening there, we're going to listen to some clips from a very interesting episode of Deadline Live with Jack Blood from way back in 2008 at the time of the collapse of uh, Lehman Brothers and the bailout of AIG in which Richard Grove was talking to Jack Blood about some of these connections and what he really thinks all of this uh, Maurice Greenberg being shoved out of his position really means. Well, I want to to underscore, because they destroyed a lot of evidence that day, both at the Pentagon and Building 7 in the World Trade Center Towers. A lot of crucial evidence to show malfeasance, money laundering, et cetera, et cetera, was all destroyed. And they tried to destroy you and your evidence by dictating you up. Again, keeping in mind they had prior knowledge that the, the towers would come down, and they wanted our guest, Richard Grove, to go up to the 96th floor 
to uh, bring all of his evidence <laughs> and to yeah, I shouldn't laugh, but I mean it's just amazing that, that that they thought they could get away with this, and it was just fortuitous, a chance of luck. You got stuck in traffic that you weren't up there in that tower and and were killed that day with along with your evidence. Right, because Enron started, I think, September 6th, and a bunch of the Enron records were in World Trade Center 7 and, and in the World Trade Center. There's all sorts of things going on with that. And I think that, you know, the person who, you know, inadvertently or purposely directed me to go to the building that day in researching what he's done since, he's in a partnership with a Council on Foreign Relations member. So, you know, when Silverstein's getting warnings from, you know, possibly the Mossad or other CFR members who are in the know, and Marsh and AIG are run by a father and son team who are both in the Council on Foreign Relations. And the father, Hank, who runs AIG, was the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and the, ch- the chairman of the, the Federal Reserve Bank. And then right after 9-11, Marsh and AIG got busted for their insurance scheme. So Spitzer goes in and investigates. And there's a whole, it goes really deep from there. But the summary is that uh, Hank Greenberg had to leave AIG, and so that's what I think is going on right now. He's making a move through the Fed, using it as a proxy to retake over his company at a fraction of the cost. You see, but, now that you know, isn't something you're going to hear on the news, <laughs> folks, every day. Can you get into, we got about uh, two minutes left in this segment, and we're going to be talking about this, folks, for the entire hour with our guest, uh, Richard Andrew Grove. Can you elaborate on that? So Hank Greenberg, Maurice Hank, they call him Hank Greenberg, it's... Uh, not the baseball player, but, uh, you know. Well, that's why he took it. He named himself Hank after the famous baseball player. His name's Maurice Greenberg. Uh, he had um, uh, a history in the U.S. Signal Corps, which became the NSA. He has very close ties to the OSS and CIA. He's worked with Wild Bill Donovan back in the day before it was the CIA. Uh, one of the co-founders um, of the CIA, his son, is on the board of directors of AIG and Kroll Associates. And Kroll Associates did security at the World Trade Center on September 11th and has an affiliation with John O'Neill and his death, and there's all sorts of things. But let me just back it up a second and just say that, you know, it starts out, AIG started out with uh, Cornelius V. Starr, who also worked with Wild Bill Donovan, and Cornelius V. Starr is related to Kenneth Starr, who put Bill Clinton on trial. So that whole misdirection about a blowjob, while Kosovo and all these other, Milosevic, all these things are going on, we have to just understand that, you know, they, they basically try their own people using their own people, so there's never any unknown risk in what's going to happen. It's all, like, theatrical. All right, let's pick up where we left off. You, you kind of dropped a bombshell, and that's why I wanted to have you on. And, and I'm reading things a lot of, in a lot of the same ways you are. Hank Greenberg using the Fed to retake his company, AIG. Uh, any elaboration, any evidence, any uh, documentation you can throw behind that uh, and let us know exactly why you think that would be appreciated. Go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> that would have been good for me to print it out, right? I, uh, I do have it, and... Um... I'm going to post it on the website along with this video in the next 24 hours. But what it posits is this. Uh, when Hank Greenberg got uh, displaced out of his own AIG, uh, he then became chairman. He fell back to be chairman of something called the Star Foundation and something called SICO, uh, the Star Investment Company. And so when you go into what these entities do, um, it brings what AIG does into context because AIG, for instance, um, at one time at least in the recent history, uh, had more private airliners than any other corporation out there. So they had their own private fleet of airlines, like the largest private fleet outside of the military. And so the question is, what, what does AIG do? What is the nature of insurance? What is the nature of reinsurance? And as some people... You mean protection uh, money, right? But go ahead. <laughs> right, sure. Pr- protection money. There, there, there's where you bring in Kroll, because Kroll does... 
kidnap and ransom protection and these sort of policies that are held by top CEOs and covered by AIG, they actually use Kroll as the, the, you know, the operator, the actionary that goes in and rescues these executives who were held hostage for money and whatnot. So, you know, the, you have that aspect of the insurance, and then when you get into the reinsurance, really, along with software, that is a prime vehicle and a, a plausible place where you can launder large amounts of money because you're dealing with all this, uh, all this fluff, and there's not, there's not much solidness there. So it's a huge area. And so what, where you back up a step and you say, what was Marsha McLennan? They're the world's largest insurance brokerage. They own reinsurance brokers. They own insurance companies. that They're partnered father and son with AIG. And Hank's other son, um, Evan, ran ACE Insurance. So you've got his family in control of these three insurance companies. And then as a result of 9-11, what happens? Premiums go sky high, right? And at the same time, AIG and Marsh are caught cheating their customers out of you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And, you know, when Spitzer investigates, I mean, that's a whole other story because you have to understand where Elliot Spitzer came from. He was a, uh, a rich kid whose dad was much like the Donald Trump of his time. Spitzer, you know, financed his own campaign partially, but the other guy who helped Spitzer finance his campaign and get into politics was a guy named Michael Cherkowski. Now, Michael Cherkowski was the CEO of Kroll, and when Spitzer investigates Marsh and AIG, and Kroll is part of that group, AIG sells Kroll to Marsh, and Cherkowski, the guy who brought Spitzer into the politics game, becomes the CEO at Marsh, making it very hard for Spitzer to do an investigation. And at the same time, Spitzer's claiming to do an investigation into 9-11, but he never connects all the, you know, he never connects all the dots. Now, it's, it's not my job to speculate why he doesn't connect the dots. It's just to notice the fact that you've got AIG and Blackstone involved with financing the World Trade Center, security of the World Trade Center. Marsha McLennan is not only involved with uh, their stock, uh, stock put options uh, the week before 9-11, along with American Airlines. But Marsh gets hit in the attacks, and Marsh, lose th- Marsh lost uh, 320 people. And then the CEO of Marsh Risk is L. Paul Bremer. And L. Paul Bremer went over to Iraq and was overseeing, you know... The governor whole- of Iraq, yeah. Right. Hundreds of billions of dollars again. And he's yes, the right. one that, of course, let the uh, broke up the military, and that, of course, uh, precipitated in uh, the sectarian violence. And then, of course, you know, we can get into P2OG and some of these other operations. But right. how the plot thickens. Go ahead. Well, so you have all these things, and they're, they're kind of unnoticed both by the 9-11 community as well as the traditional news community. The traditional news community is running stories on Spitzer and why he can't crack AIG and Marsh and you know, what's going on there? And Spitzer's own account says that the people at Marsh put on black hats, meaning that they weren't willing to share, invest, you know, investigation information. They weren't willing to share information freely with the, with the attorney general. And Spitzer in his articles says, I can't figure out why they would do that. Well, I know why they would do that, because there was a lot more to be seen, except, you know, beyond this little $100 million or $100 billion fraud or whatever that's going on. And so it is that I will, with this clip, as with every other piece of information that I've directed you to today, implore you to go and explore that more fully and listen to the entire conversation there between Jack Blood and Richard Grove, as it is truly fascinating. And that, again, taking place just days after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, still in the midst of the AIG bailout brouhaha, and all of that swirling around, and yet they were able to pierce down to what was really going on and who the players really were, because they were 
grounded in history. And once again, that is absolutely key for all of us so that when these types of events take place, we have an idea who is who, how they're connected, and what's really happening. So we can sit here now four years later and with the luxury of that four years of hindsight understand that, for example, if AIG really is tied at the hip with intelligence agencies and involved in dirty dealings with the likes of Henry Kissinger and others all around the globe for the past 30, 40, 50 years at least... Well, then certainly the government could not allow that information to come out, or at least the people who were implicated in those deals could not allow that information to come out. Therefore, AIG could not be allowed to fail, because if it did, all of its deals would unravel and unravel in a very public way. So that certainly makes sense that the government would come in and nationalize the company in order to cover up all of it and to make sure that none of that ever got thoroughly investigated or seen through to the end. Because, well, you have to keep all of this bailout shenanigans undercover and under wraps because, you know, the, the public just can't know this information. Well, a very convenient excuse anyway. So if 9-11 was used to hide f- uh, fraudulent transactions and, uh, and vast amounts of money that were being funneled and moved around on that day, then perhaps the crash of uh, 08 was also used to hide some of the dirty dealings of some precarious companies like AIG that suddenly found themselves in dire straits. Once again, unfortunately, all of this is necessarily speculative because I presume you, and certainly not I, are privy to any of this insider background information or know what kind of deals are being made in the corridors of power. But if there is anything that we can say other than to, of course, implore you to continue exploring all of the different threads that we've left kind of hanging out there today in this rich tapestry that is AIG, to put it uh, politely. If there's anything else that we can do, it is to at least take a moment to reflect on the possibility, and we don't even have to go out there and try to create, uh, draw lines together when we don't have the documents to do so, but even what is the ramification of an insurance company, any insurance company, being tied at the hip or perhaps even puppeteered by elements of the intelligence agencies? Insurance companies know more about you than pretty much anyone else. They know who you are, they know where you live, they know where you work, they know about your medical history, they know all sorts of detailed information about your lives, so that just as that information about infrastructure, about buildings, about uh, all of that information was so valuable to the CIA, for example, during World War II, when they were looking for good targets to attack and to burn enemy cities to the ground... Well, think about an an intelligence agency that's part of a greater police state control grid that is trying to completely control every aspect of your daily life and know everything about you. It only makes sense that they would want to puppeteer or in some way team up with something like an insurance company that is watching over everything you do. And unfortunately, with the connections to companies like Kroll, which is basically has long been known as the Wall Street CIA, uh, uh, basically a a private spy firm for hire that unfortunately has also been implicated in things like 9-11 and uh, was running security at the World Trade Center, etc., Well, when you start to amass that kind of power in the hands of the band of brothers of the board of a group like AIG, you start to look at some very, very serious concentrations of power that inevitably lead to abuses of power, as if there would be any other way to wield that power than in the interests of the few against the interests of the many. So I think it serves us all to reflect on what the 
ties between the intelligence agencies and the insurance industry generally might mean. And of course, we have to keep that in mind while investigating further into the history of AIG, which once again, I'm going to leave to all of you out there to start plumbing the depths of all of the stories that we've touched on today, because I think they are definitely a rich vein of history that deserve to be mined. But on that note, we're going to leave it there for today. So I thank you very much for joining me. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. Woke up this morning to a rainy day. I was so late for work that I forgot to change. On the way to work, I was ashamed. Because my car broke down and that was really lame. You don't even know why. It's like to have insurance. Whether house or boat or car ride. Someone saved me in the right time. Why does this breakdown always have to happen to me? I could really use a breakdown, breakdown, to my surprise everyone.